beloved, I, I ask you this Christmas week now to take your Bible and, and turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. When you get there, you can turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Of course, it is indeed Christmas week. It's just days away, hard to believe. It's the end of the year. It's the end of 20. And I know that rouses many emotions in many of you. But you know, as you think about the end of the year and the celebration of Christmas and maybe what you've come here today to celebrate, what you've come here to partake in, for most of the past 2,000 years, most of the past 2,000 years, the church has taken time at the end of every year. Is that not true? Taken time at the end of each year to mark the coming of Christ to earth. And of course, as we sang about this morning, is the incarnation of the Son of God, God in flesh. God came down, and we remember that, church, do we not? The end of every year since Christ ascended, we do that. And as it goes, every year we mark, we celebrate, and we look back, and we remember the first Christmas 2,000 years ago. That, of course, is Christmas reflection in this age But you know, Westmount, there is an age that is coming that itself is a whole millennium long. It's actually a thousand years long. This is an age that's coming. The age where thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Yes, the kingdom of God in that age will rule the earth. I know that warms your heart. The kingdom of God will rule the earth. For a thousand years yet to come, there will be, mark this, every man, woman, government, nation under the dominion of the king. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign on earth. That is coming. And in that kingdom, that future age, the Christmas reflection will be different. Transport with me for a moment. For sure, in that age, you will have readings. The little ones will bring forth Matthew 1 and Luke 2. You will have that. Maybe pageants and all. They'll knock down a tree, right? Crash into the stable. You might have that in the millennium. In fact, I'm sure you will. However, that first Christmas will no longer be the predominant Christmas or the predominant memory in that millennial kingdom and mark it for each one of those thousand Christmases. They will also look back. But this time, not just on the first Christmas, but mark it on the second. The second Christmas that is foretold clearly in the passage that lays open in front of you. Look at it with me, Revelation 19. We start in verse 11. This is the second Christmas. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe... 
And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That second coming of Christ is indeed, beloved, the second Christmas. The Christmas that is the consummation and the fulfillment of Christ's coming. And that is very important to acknowledge as we begin our study this morning and as you, I would suggest, begin your Christmas week. Because you read that account and you can't help, look at it, you can't help but mark the differences in Christ's arrival. This is a very different Christmas. Christ does not come by way of the womb delivering, but by way of heaven opening. Christ does not come with a manger ready and feeding animals all around, but he comes military ready on a white horse. The picture of a coming soldier, a coming king. Christ does not arrive to earth under an execution order by one jealous evil king. No, look at it. Christ arrives this time to strike down and execute all wicked kings. Christ does not arrive lowly as helpless babe, no, instead powerfully as mighty warrior. This second Christmas, Christ arrives on earth with a very different mission. The first Christmas, Christ arrived with an offer of salvation and patience, long-suffering to follow that offer. This second Christmas, Christ arrives in market. Time has run out, and the end has come. The first Christmas, Christ came in grace and truth, John 1, and was judged by the wicked. The second Christmas will come in wrath and justice, and this king will judge the wicked. Beloved, this coming here in Revelation 19, this coming of Christ that you see here in Revelation 19, this is indeed Christmas. This is the fullness of the fullness of time. The fulfillment of all Christ's coming has promised. Church, this second Christmas, this second coming and the arrival of Christ Jesus, mark this, is the culmination of God's plan that his people have been waiting for throughout all of redemptive history. This is it. This consummation at the end of time is what has been anticipated from the very beginning of time. Here it is. Yes, and we would say the very, very beginning of time. By way of brief survey, this coming Christmas was first pointed to pointed to in Genesis 3.15, to the serpent. It was said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall what? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What Christ Jesus crushed spiritually at his first coming is physically here at the second coming crushed completely. War, victory, subsequent kingdom rule, lake of fire, and all in subsequent events fulfilled. Where a scepter and ruler's staff was foretold to come from Judah's line, and you see that rod there in Revelation 19, well, this second Christmas was the coming, the coming in Genesis 49 foretold. What about Isaiah 11? Isaiah 11, where the prophet foretold of the righteous reign of the branch, In verse 4 of Isaiah 11, note this, listen to the language. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips 
He shall kill the wicked. Is it not what's described right here in Revelation 19? The second Christmas is the judgment on the nations. Think with me of Joel 3, the judgment of the nations. This second Christmas is the earth splitting, that Mount of Olives splitting, return of the king that you find in Zechariah 14. Of course, it was not just the prophets foretelling the second Christmas. Mark this one, Psalm 96.13. The Lord comes, the Lord will come to judge the earth. And what about Psalm 2? Psalm 2, which itself is a commentary on Revelation 19. Let me just read you a couple verses from Psalm 2. Note this, this messianic psalm, looking ahead. It says of Messiah in verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And then verse 9, You, Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That was foretold. The law, the prophets, the psalms, all foretelling this second coming. Even more, with the first coming of the Messiah, the New Testament apostles echoed the same thing. It never changes when you roll over to the New, uh, New Testament. This king, this Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he prophesied this, mark this, in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Listen to Jesus foretelling. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, note the time marker, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This second Christmas is the righteous judgment revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. This second Christmas is what was foretold by the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul said this in verse 7. Listen. This coming will be to grant relief to his afflicted. Oh, hang on to that. To grant relief to his afflicted. But then also this, Paul goes on. The second coming will be a repayment with affliction to those who afflict God's people. And more, verse 8, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now listen, these pictures, these realities will not appear on any Christmas card you receive this year. I'm quite sure of that. But Westmount, it is Christmas. This is Christmas. Now, the current times that we're in do warrant an overall comment here before we go any further. The second coming of Christ, and those, that was just a brief survey I gave you of the Bible, is not something that we're easing into. You might hear that. We're just kind of easing into the kingdom, easing into his return. This is not the quiet coming and growing of the kingdom of God that somehow we're already in in this age. 
This is not the imperceptible kingdom of God that, again, we just don't see it, don't realize it. No, what do you know? We're in it. No. Listen, church, some might claim that, but that is not what the Bible teaches. And let me prove it to you. This is not the expected capstone of a world getting better. No, this second coming, as we enter here into the book of Revelation this morning, is the sudden inbreaking, the sudden arrival of the king to a world at its very worst. In fact, if we were to go through Revelation, those opening chapters this morning, you would see a wrath-stained, blood-stained earth that has been absolutely purged. You say, how can the world get any worse than today? I mean, I don't know about you, 2020 has been a pretty bad year, you might say. Like, I don't know how it can get any worse. Well, the book that's open in your hands describes how it will. Beloved, this sudden arrival of a king to a decimated earth, this inbreaking of the kingdom to a world that shatters the false kingdom, is precisely what is described in Daniel 2. When, listen to this. The kingdom of God, like a stone cut by no human hand, strikes the earth. What an image, right? This is the arrival described in verse 44 of that same chapter where God says this, that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and note this, it will bring them to an end. The initiation of that process is precisely what is described here in Revelation 19. This is, this second Christmas, the establishing of the kingdom in which Christ rules, look at the imagery, with a rod of iron. This is the kingdom arrival, suddenly, immediately, devastatingly. This is heaven open. This is king coming down. This is power and might. And church, that is the only way that it can happen. Listen, as the nations today get worse. Is that not true? The church will not win the nations. The church will not conquer kingdoms today. That was never prophesied. That's not the mandate. In fact, by way of more evidence, look around at this self-destructing world. And let me tell you if this world has ears for the kingdom of God. God's word says, Romans 1, the world will be turned over and over and over and receive exactly what it desires. The world wants nothing of God, and God says that is exactly what you will get. Let the world operate under its own kingdom, to its own demise, to its own end, and only then, in the wake of a destroyed, purged earth market, will kingdom come. The king arise for that second Christmas And we see first here now, as we turn again to Revelation 19, the king's appearance. The king's appearance. Look with me at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That verse reveals a few realities about the second coming of Jesus Christ. First, and we've touched on this already, so we won't belabor this, he'll come by way of heaven opened, right? You see that? This coming, and here's the contrast to the first Christmas, 
This is a very public, glorious display. This is manifest power and might noted that can't be missed. This is not a corner of Bethlehem. This is for the whole globe to see. That's one. Two, the first of four names of the Christ are given in this account. The first is this, faithful and true. The rider is faithful and true. Who is faithful and true? Well, it's self-evident, but we need reminder, and we'll just... Look at the context of Revelation, the context of this very book. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. This is Christ. Revelation 3.7 says, Christ, the one that's giving John these words in this final apocalypse, is the true one. Revelation 3.14 says, Christ is both faithful and true as witness. Same words. The rest of the New Testament, if we were to go a little further, also confirms who's the only faithful and true one. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that Christ is faithful and just. And that's your great hope, Christian, in forgiveness. You can stand up after repenting from sin and walk again and have mercy and have hope. Why? Because he's faithful and true. That's why you can. 2 Timothy 2.13 provides a confession that declares Christ as faithful. The early church stood on this like we do today. They say nothing can happen to us. We will stand. Why? Because our God stands forever and he is faithful. Amazing. And of course, Jesus Christ himself in his earthly ministry declared this in John 14.6. He said, I am the truth. And by the way, that's not I am a truth. I am whatever truth you want me to be. I am what? The truth. That means the only truth. The only truth. I am the truth. At the center of this account then is Jesus Christ, the faithful and true. Three, the purpose of this mission, look, is at the end of verse one. He judges and makes war. Again, as I mentioned previously, this second Christmas is very different, unexpected maybe for some. This coming does not usher in an age of gospel invitation and long-suffering. No, this second coming, note it, is to reconcile all people to God. That's right, I said everyone. You say, wait a minute, where are you going with that? No, all people will be reconciled to God. Listen to me, if you're an accountant in here, you understand this. This means like all reconciliations, that if the debt is paid, the line item is clear. Does that make sense? If the debt is paid, the line item is clear. Then for those with line items cleared, with justified accounts, they will then experience eternal life. Praise the Lord. That saving reconciliation is for those who have repented in this life and placed their faith and trust in not only Savior Jesus, but Lord Christ in this life. However, for the rest, there's still more reconciliation. There is a debt outstanding that still must be paid. This is what accountants do. They reconcile the books. For those not reconciled in that way to their maker, they still need to be reconciled in some way. And listen to me, they will pay it. They will face judgment here through war. Here the rebels are destroyed by the returning king. And not only here, but as we'll learn in the next chapter in Revelation 20, if we were to keep reading, destroyed for eternity in the lake of fire, reconciled. Reconciled. Accounts are now brought 
to reconciliation. This is the appearance of Christ's second coming. And again, it's not like the first. Now, it is not just the appearance of Christ's mission that is different. The next two verses describe the very different look of Jesus. Mark this physical appearance. This is anything but a helpless babe. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. The Word of God. His eyes, look at it, are like a flame of fire. What a picture. This is, by the way, the standard description of Christ in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.14, the opening vision to John, Christ is described with eyes like flame of fire. Revelation 2.18, to the church in Thyatira, the Son of God is said to have eyes like a flame of fire. These are eyes of justice. In this final book of the Bible, when reconciliation is happening to all men, These are eyes of justice. These are eyes of the Almighty. These are eyes of the conquering king who, as a returning king, has not just a crown on his head, look at it, but what? Many diadems. Many diadems. Diadems or crowns, we could say. It's that band that the king wore around his head to signify rule. And what's interesting here, it's not just one of this local kingdom. There are many diadems. This is, as we will see, No different king, or a different king very much than an earthly king. He has many diadems on his head. The royal garment that marks it, the many diadems, absolute rule, absolute sovereignty over all diadems and kings. And then the second name given in our passage, look at it, the end of verse 12. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Amazingly. In the middle of this revealing appearance of the returning king, there was still the mystery of our king. Do you see that? He is being revealed for all humanity, but there's still mystery in your God. Isn't this amazing? Because he is God and God alone. Still mystery. He returns. He comes again. Look at it with a name written that no one knows but who? Himself. This is the reminder, friends, of how sovereign our king is. This name only he knows. In this public display, in this global manifestation, God says, I remain sovereign. And there is a name that only I know. No one can profess to have this kind of omniscience, this all-knowing. This name, this mystery is in the domain of the Almighty alone. Now in verse 13, we're presented with the third name attributed to the Lord Jesus. But before we get to that, I want you to note the graphic description of his attire. Look at this. He has a robe dipped in blood. He's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. Blood, of course, is not an unfamiliar association with our Savior Jesus Christ. His shed blood poured out for us is the capital of the new covenant, Luke 22. The shed blood of Christ. So in one sense, we might look at this blood-tinged robe and think the cross. Well, that is true in part, and certainly if we consider the first Christmas and the first coming, that coming was by the Lamb of God, John 1, 
29, who came to shed his blood. However, this is the second coming, and more than just the lamb's blood is shed. Remember, this coming is not to save his own. That's not what the second coming is about. He's already taken care of that at the first coming. That blood that was shed at the first coming was blood to save his own. No, the blood shed here and this coming is for the judgment and the reconciliation of those who are not his. In fact, the other dimension of the blood in view here, I would submit to you, will become vividly clear when you look at verse 15. This blood, even more so, at this second Christmas represents, here it is, justice. Justice. Mercy at the first coming, justice at the second. This blood is the shed blood of those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those who have their arms and obstinance and say, I will not bow to this king. I will not bow. I'm a rebel to the king. This reality is, of course, nothing new. This fulfillment prophesied in the book of Isaiah, in the days of Isaiah. Just listen to this from Isaiah 63. This would be about 700 years before Jesus Christ. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people's No one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That is exactly what is going on in Revelation 19. Don't you marvel at times how the Bible comes together? Prophecy given, prophecy fulfilled. All of it incomplete. And that name we alluded to before, look at it before we leave this verse. The third name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now, we'll have much more to say about this Christmas Eve night. But what an incredible picture in the middle of this military motif, right? And the Word, of course, in ancient times, they elevated the Word, the Logos, right? It was always elevated. And here, just slipped in to this battle. I just love this. It says, oh, by the way, I am the Word of God. Look at what you have in your hands. Still the eternal word. So much more we'll say about that. But don't miss that. This is the king's appearance. The king's appearance physically, the word of God, all fulfilled. Foretold then, Isaiah 63, manifest now in Revelation 19. We move on now to verse 14. Verse 14, we've seen the king's appearance, now the king's armies. Look at verse 14 with me. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And you'll say, who are these armies of heaven following Christ at his second coming? That's a great question. Who are these armies? Who are they? Well, again, context answers that, right? We go into our toolbox, we pull out context. Look again at how they're dressed. They are what? Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. And let me ask you, aside from Christ, 
Who else is dressed like that? We'll just look up a few verses. Let's look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out. Here's the cry. We prayed it earlier. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. And look at this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, his bride, who is the church, has made herself ready. And then look at this. It was granted her, the bride, to clothe herself in what? Fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That is the description of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the consummation, right, of God's people, the church. Every marriage in ancient times had those three parts, and we still in one sense do today. This is the consummation, bride and bridegroom coming together, and that's where the marriage supper of the Lamb and all of that becomes vivid and real that coming together and flowing out of that, the righteous deeds, the wedding garments, if you will, of the saints. And here they wear these wedding garments as they return with the king. Amazing. By the way, Zechariah 14.5 confirms who these people are. Just note it. Zechariah 14.5, another ancient prophecy, says of Christ's return, listen to this, the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. Holy ones, by the way, is the same word you get in the New Testament for saints. Same thing, refers to the set-apart ones. Isn't that lovely? We will come with him in our white linen. Amazing. Beloved, this second Christmas, Christ does not appear alone. No angels need to appear with instructive dreams or to herald shepherds. No, 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 that's the first Christmas. No, at the second Christmas, Christ appears with his armies, the church, With him, saints, that is us. That's you and I. Do you see that? That's us. It's amazing. That's us with fine linen returning with him. Is that not hope? We return with him in fine linen. The second Christmas, God is not calling people onto himself like he is now. Instead, this second Christmas, Christ comes, the king returns, already with those who are his. This account continues the second Christmas. It concludes with this. King's adversaries. King's adversaries. Turn your attention with me to verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. From his mouth, or you could say, out of his mouth, comes a sharp sword. Again, lest there be any missing the purpose of Christ's second coming here, and we don't want to miss it, this verse puts it to rest. Look at it. Christ returns not only, by the way, that literally is exhaling a sword, but that sword is to do what? Look at it. Strike down the nations. That, of course, is precisely what we read earlier in Isaiah 11, isn't it? Do you see how it's coming together? This is exactly what he said he would do. And after that military conquest, then what? We keep reading in verse 15, Christ will rule them with a rod of iron. Don't miss this here, the distinctly conquering reality. Note it, the king returns, second Christmas, to rule, to rule. Here is what we sung with shades of this morning, our very first song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. For that second Christmas, that second coming, 
to rule. To rule. And we mentioned just a few of these verses before that remind us of this, but let's just note two again. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That's all the way back in Genesis. Jacob to his son. Psalm 2, 9. We read this already. He will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is ancient prophecy coming to fulfillment. And of course, the promise to the churches. Think of the churches that start this book in Revelation. Consider Revelation 2. Revelation 2 to the church again in Thyatira. Listen to this, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And listen. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself, there it is, have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amazing. Remember, church, this is not local kingdom rule. Right? This is not Christ just recognized in this little quarter. Oh, you know, the... Christ, he's having a thing there. No, that's not what that is. Let's get that out of our mind. This is global, spherical, universal rule. That's what's going on here. This is ruling with a rod of iron. Note it. Note the kingdom over the whole earth. The whole earth. And beloved, that has implications today because it feels like something else is ruling over the earth, does it not? An invisible virus. It feels like this invisible thing is ruling, not over governments only, but over the hearts of men. COVID reigns. COVID reigns. It certainly feels like that, but listen to me, beloved, please, this Christmas. That is today, but it's not tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. The coming second Christmas, listen to me, the Bible declares he reigns. He rules. Even more, however, in these times when it feels like injustice is rampant, in these times when it feels like oppression and tyranny are winning the day, and oh my, sometimes it can feel that, can't it? Consider the end of verse 15. Just look at this and please let's understand what the Word of God is proclaiming in this text. He, that is Christ, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is justice weighed and justice enacted. It's coming. This compounding phrase, don't you feel it compounding as you read it? Describes the intensity of the coming justice. Now God's wrath, which by the way is not normally associated with Christmas, here in this, the second Christmas, it is a salient theme. It is a major theme. In fact, 13 times from Revelation 6 leading up to Revelation 19, God's wrath is in view and it crests here. And I want you to consider the image. Look at the image there, the wine press. In God's word, the wine press is a picture of judgment. In this same book, in Revelation 14, 19, God's wrath is actually called, capital G, capital W, the great wine press. Wine press was a big, hollowed-out rock. Very often, they could have artificially made it, but often it was hewed out of rock. It was just this cavity in the rock. And it would have little arteries, little channels that would go down from that cavity into like a lower pool. And it would throw a ton of grapes in there, right? And what would they do? Take off their sandals and just stomp and press. 
and the juice would flow down the channels and it would land in the bottom pools. Grapes trampled, just picture that, by foot. Can you imagine the walls of that cavity? Stained red. Weak, month, year, stomping, pressing. All going on in that one arena. And who here, that was there in the ancient Near East, who here, look at it, is doing the stomping in this wine press? God Almighty. God Almighty. Do you see that? That Old Testament name for God, we're very familiar with it, of course, in Exodus, God alone. That name, God Almighty, is given ten times in the New Testament. And note this, Westmount, nine of those ten times appear where? Right here in the book of Revelation. God Almighty. And that makes sense when you consider the name of Almighty God. Again, as we've learned in Exodus, only God Almighty right, has the authority and the power to enter the great wine press. Only God Almighty has the power and the title to deal with his adversaries. And that title, that name is the fourth in this arrival. And here it is, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to note that on both his garment and his body, on both, is written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's an identical name to the one given a couple chapters earlier. We are to read on the war with the beast in chapter 17. That's the same name that's given, Revelation 17, verse 14. Same name, by the way, used by the Apostle Paul in the doxologies of the early church. 1 Timothy 6.15, he, Christ, what does Paul say? Who is the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Even further back than that, echoes of this name were given to Israel. Think with me of Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Again, I can only point you to the obvious reality of that name, church. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. What does that mean? It means you take all the kings of all the earth, of all time, you line them up, and I don't care how mighty they are, and there is one king who is above them. Jesus Christ is the King of kings. That's what that means. And also, look at it, Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords. Now here's where we go deeper and it's more penetrating to our soul. You take all the lords of creation, whatever they are, whoever they are, item, idol, person, thing, whatever, you line them all up. Whatever the person calls Lord, in practice or in theory, and there is one Lord over all of them. And who is it? Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of Lords. That's what that means. Take whoever and whatever is Lord. And there is one Lord over all. It doesn't matter the controller. It doesn't matter the ruler. It doesn't matter the one claiming allegiance. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. He's the Lord of Lords. In the end, there's only one with rightful lordship over all lords. That is the Lord Christ Jesus, who here at this second Christmas deals with those who are opposed to him. Justice arrives and is served by the mighty king. That Westmount is the second Christmas that they will remember in the kingdom of God. 
Now listen, this is indeed Christmas, but I am very certain this is not the Christmas you desired to hear this morning. I know that. I know it's, you didn't come to hear that. However, I want to offer you something this morning, that the second Christmas is precisely what you need to hear about at the end of this year. 2020 is the year of years, is it not? I want to leave you with three reasons, then I will let you go. Three reasons why the second Christmas is your only hope today. Number one, the coming king is certain. You hear that? The coming king is certain. According to the most conservative estimates, there are about 350 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. That was 2,000 years ago, and I ask you something. Did Christ come? He came. Did he come exactly as the Old Testament said? He did. There were 350 or so prophecies that we would all agree are accurate and stunningly accurate. What of Christ's second coming? What of the second Christmas? How many prophecies of that? Again, and I just use conservative estimates, there are some, mark this, 1,527 verses that point to the second coming. 1,527. Beloved, that means, and I'm no mathematician, one out of every 25 Old Testament verses point to the second coming of the king. Even more, that's four times as many passages on the second coming as the first. Christian, listen to me. Your king is returning. He is coming very soon. And Christian, I want you to take comfort in that. His return is certain and near. Two, not only his coming... Justice is coming. And here it is. It will be complete. It will be complete. The long-suffering will be over in this age. Beloved, the reality of injustice is not just a 2020 reality. Listen to me. Injustice is a historical human reality. Every age, every civilization has had to deal with injustice, and often lots of it. And I'm quite sure if you are sitting here in Christ today, you've uttered this. You've joined with the psalmist and you've said this, How long, O Lord, do you not see this evil, God? Do you not see what's going on on this globe? How long? How long? Yes, he sees the evil. And yes, he's always had a plan for it. He sent his son at the first Christmas to deal with, here it is, our evil. Our hearts, our depravity, us. And at the second Christmas, all evil will be dealt with finally and completely. Beloved, I know at the end of this year, it feels like evil will never end. Does it not feel like that? Just how many ever days to go? It feels like this will never end and evil will just continue to win the day. But listen to me. And more, listen to the word of God. It will end. It will end. It will. And that is your hope this Christmas. The king is coming and he will make it right. Justice will be served. And finally this, three. This reality, this weight of Christ's second coming is the only solution. Jerry walked us through the pandemic of the fear of death. The fear of death is what's driving everything that you see around you. I, I do. 
I want to confidently say that to you right now. The fear of death is what's driving the bus on everything that you see going on out there. People don't want to die. But here's the problem. And just take our little corner of the globe in Peterborough at Westmount Bible Chapel. Death has come to us. Two of our own have died this year. Three of us have lost parents. Many of us have lost friends and relatives in a year that we just are confounded by. Who's next? Who will die? And they're all reminders that we all will die. And listen to me, beloved. If we don't understand death in 2020, we will never understand it. And so, friends, I do this. If I can do so boldly, I ask you to consider death this Christmas, this year end. I know it's a leap, and I know not many will like it, but that's what I'm asking you to do. And why am I asking you to do that? Because is it not clear? God has ordained this to be a year of death. He's ordained it. It's come to many of us. There's no escaping it. Death is here. And this is not to be morbid. This is to just simply point out the reality. But listen, when we think about the ordination of death this year, we are simply talking about reality. And I I want to point you to this to end. This is so important. This is so important. I could have stood up here this Christmas week and given you a lovey-dovey message, right? And just say, let's love harder and, you know, just think happy thoughts and we're going to get through this. I could have done that. I could have done that. But listen to me, Westmount. I love you too much to do that. We live in a real world with real things and a real living word. And you want, like I do, hope, do you not, to end this year. And beloved, we go here to this morning because this is the only hope you have. The second coming of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. No medicine, no vaccine, no lockdown, nothing, no riot, no protest, none of that will deliver you. But the coming king will. That's it. What we don't need now are shallow promises and platitudes. What we need in a world that's on fire is truth, do we not? We need truth. In a broken world that's getting worse, the only thing that is going to get you to Christmas 2021, whatever that looks like, is this hope. The coming King. God has ordained this year to purify the church, and I know for many of us to purge our hearts. Is that not true? We have never had heart surgery like we've had in 2020. Thank God for that. This Christmas, you're confronted with the reality of a world that you don't like and a world that is helpless, a world that's trying to control its own destiny. Do you hear that? This is a world trying to control its own destiny. But Westmount, it cannot. And that's the point this morning. Instead, the destiny of all men, look at Old Testament New, has already been told. That authorship... That happy ending, that's already been written. So for us to try and control things is a futile endeavor. And that is why we look ahead to the certainty of the second Christmas. And Christian, your only hope. Church, you're presented with a child as we continue to look back on the first Christmas. That's what you will see this Christmas in the stores, on your cards, in the songs. But this child, as we will sing in a moment, is no ordinary child. He is Christ the King.
He came once, and he is coming again. Westmount, I pray this Christmas you take time not just to look back. I pray this Christmas you take time to look ahead to that coming. I urge you to take refuge in that truth. I urge you this Christmas to anchor your hope there in his certain and sure return as we look ahead to the second Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the certainty of the coming king. We thank you, Father, that you did not just send your son once, but you are sending your son again. Lord, what hope we have in that. And God, we pray this Christmas, as we're so tempted to look around, I pray, God, that you'd help us to look forward and look up at what's coming. Oh, Lord, praise you that we can have hope in these times. May we go out this Christmas, whatever our circumstance, whoever we interact with, Lord, and be ambassadors of this hope to a broken world. Father, we, we thank you for the truth and certainty that you've given to us this morning. Amen.